Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. Thank you for tuning in with us this morning at Oak City Church. Uh, we're glad that you're, you're here uh, and you can see me even if I can't see you. Uh, if you're brand new to Oak City Church, if we don't really know who you are, I would love to um, at least say a digital hello to you. And so if you could email me at jeff at Oak City Church, um, I would love that. And I will not put you on, a, on an email list. Uh, we, we don't need to be best friends. But I just want to say hi. Church is not... It's every church is struggling with how to engage people digitally, and just church is not watching something on a screen. It's relationships with people, and um, and so we'd love that. I um, I we we I've been talking for a few weeks about a series we're starting at the beginning of next year in January called, and we've we've named it "Connecting the Dots: How the Little Stories of the Bible." you know, make, tell God's big story that helps us understand our story. And for the first four, four and a half months, we're going to go through, it's 20 sermons of like going through the Bible. It goes along with a reading plan called the E100. It's on version, but, but we've got a group. So wait till you get the invite from us. And it's a hundred days of reading, which we want you to do because we want people to develop their habit of spending time with God through the Bible. It's one or two chapters a day, and it's 50 Old Testament, 50 New Testament stories, and we want you to be a part of that. And, and part of the reason we're doing this whole thing is because COVID has like shattered community in so many ways, and we're isolated. And so we're just desperate to figure out ways to get us connected. And version has opportunities for us to talk about how God's speaking us through scriptures and and just a sense of connectedness and our home groups getting together and being in the same place. So we really, really, really are encouraging you to be a part of that, to invite if you've got friends that are wondering about what this is all about, this is a great opportunity to get them involved. Um, so please pay attention to all those things that are coming out in the next few weeks. Uh, our Christmas Eve service, I, I sent an email this week, we're going to be, we will not be in person the rest of this year just with the numbers going up and people coming in and going out and the concerns about losing time with work if you're inadvertently exposed and all that. And because in order to make Christmas Eve as awesome as it could be, we needed a few weeks to like get some stuff from you guys because we want you to be a part of it. So if you've gotten an email from us saying, hey, we need a video of your kids saying Merry Christmas and this is what I love about Christmas or from you um, or a reading, we need you to get those back to us. And Christmas Eve, it's going to be a great service. So 5 p.m. on December 24th, you'll be able to watch it anytime after that. But we would love for you to tune in at 5 p.m. and it's going to be great. Okay, I had one of these things um, when I had, I had open heart surgery about 15 years ago. And this thing I think is called an invective spirometer. I tried to find one, but I couldn't because um, that would have been cool. But after I had surgery um, and I had a heart thing and they, they um, I think they had to collapse one of my lungs to get at my heart or both of them. I don't know. But the next day they had this thing and they said, okay, blow into this this thing, this tube, and the and get the ball to go up. And it's like one to 10. They're like, just get it up to like two. I'm like, two, that's not, you know? And so I blow into it and it, and it hurt. Uh, I was like, and, oh, and it's because uh, someone described this, my lung to me is like, like a neighborhood with a series of cul-de-sacs and houses and like how all this stuff 
you know, works, and then you're blowing open just the little the houses at the end of the cul-de-sac in your lungs because they've kind of shut down, and that hurts. There are some respiratory therapists and medical people out there going, this guy's a moron. He doesn't know what he's talking about, but, and I don't. But that's what they explained it to me like. But you're trying to expand your lungs and get back to a place of just being healthy. And it's hard at first, but you, you need it. Um, we were wasn't last week, but the last in-person service we had before that. After the message, I'm just worshiping and like loud. And I realized just the blessing of worshiping with a group of people and worship. And I thought about that spirometer and thought, it's like something has deflated in me. And this would be true every week, but particularly now, it's deflated in me. And worship blows it open and gets me to a place of being healthy. And we need that. I thought about it last week when I talked about Jesus gives us reason to hope and Christmas is a reminder of, you know, the big reason to hope and that hope is something that deflates as well and it's like you need to blow into this thing and, and you know, blow it bigger. And, and I, this week I want to talk about that with, with the concept of wonder as well and not wonder like, hmm, I wonder about that, but wonder like, whoa, wonder and how we need that in our life. And Christmas is an opportunity. Jesus gives us reason to wonder, to like inflate that thing in us that tends to get deflated. My mind went here. Um, I don't think we're good at wonder in our days. And my mind went to something that's semi-controversial and we could talk about it if you want to, but this, this yard sign. I know you've seen this yard sign because it's just become a thing. And we could have a long conversation about this. It's, I don't, they don't really necessarily disagree with anything on the, on the yard sign. Uh, but my, the problem for me is that I feel like the yard sign is not really an invitation to conversation about issues, <laughs> but more of like a statement or a creed. There's, to me, an implicit projected arrogance or self-righteousness in it that says, if you disagree with me on these issues and how I perceive each of these individual issues, we're going to have problems. Um, it, in fact, I think in this longer discussion is like a stereo, the stereotype of the church is, you know, just don't ask questions, just go along with it and toe the line, you know, and that's what the yard sign is in our cultural moment. Um, and so sometimes you become the thing that you hate. And I feel like that's what's happened to some folks in our culture and they're all nuanced issues, you know, but you don't sense a lot of room for nuance or conversation. Now, the one I went to with wonder is the statement, science is real. Because like, right, right, science is real. And <laughs> just who would disagree with that? Uh, and yet, it, I think it's part of a cultural flow that's saying a lot more than that. And it's saying that science can explain everything. Like science is all we need. And it, it crowds out any room for for wonder. You know, even if the science can change next month or next year, we'll still put our faith in the science and, and our hope that it will answer the things. And wonder is something that is childish and we've moved past it. And, you know, there's little room for it. And so I think we live, it's just an example of living in what is an anti-wonder world. And science is fantastic. 
I talked about this before. I think the original scientists really traveled through wonder to get to science, to realize that science could be a thing. Um, and, but I think because of technology and because of science and because of access to information, we crowd out wonder. Uh, but also because wonder points us to something beyond us, to something more powerful than us, something that has implications for us in the way we live our lives, and we tend to resist that. So we have problems with wonder, and Christmas gives us plenty of opportunities to wonder. So I'm going to spend some time in the story of the wise men uh, coming to Jesus and just talk about, you know, what it means about us and wonder and how it gives us opportunity to, you know, blow this barometer and open up some wonder inside of us. So this is Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose in the east, and we've come to worship him. This is... This is, we're so familiar with this. This is an insane story that evokes wonder. Like starting with, who are these guys? You know, they're wise men. The, the word is magi. Like that's what they are. It gets translated to the three kings. That might be a little bit much, but they certainly would have. It's not just, it's not like three door-to-door salesmen knocking on your door trying to sell you a security system or something. You know what I mean? Like it's, these guys would have an entourage um, they traveled a long way. Everybody in Jerusalem would know that these guys got there because of their entourage. And they're like, whoa, who are those guys? They're really important in the place that they came from. And what are they doing? Why are they here again? Like, how exactly did they discern that this star meant that a king had been born? Um, why, why are they seeking to worship the king? Like, what does that exactly mean? And finally, like, are they just crazy? Are they nuts? Uh, because that's a possibility, chasing a star to find a king. But it turns out they were right, and they're not. And so that in itself should drive you to a place like defies explanation and leads to a place of, whoa, like wonder, you know? Now, the Magi are a known group of folks. Um, they are, a, it's an ancient priesthood of the the Medes, that's the modern-day Kurds in Iraq. It's that same people group. Um, but they, they were known to have extraordinary religious knowledge. Darius the Great had established them over the state religion of Persia. So there was no separation of church and state. It's a state religion. So these guys were really important in that day. You can read about them in extra-biblical literature and that they interpreted dreams and they chased stars and like stuff like this happened with them. Um, and because they're over a state religion, like it says civil and political council was invested with religious authority. And so the, the Magi were really important people in the Persian Empire, but then also in the Seleucid and the Parthian empires as, as well. Uh, known, known people. Daniel, the prophet from the Old Testament, was, uh, he was referred to as the chief of the wise men, which in Hebrew is the Rab Maj. Magi. It's the same thing. It's this same group of people. So the thread goes back to Daniel. And you see similar types of things happen with Daniel. Daniel tells these prophecies. He has a dream about a statue and it represents empires, like goes from the 
Babylonian Empire to the Medo-Persian Empire to the Greek Empire to the Roman Empire hundreds of years before those empires existed. And Daniel can be dated back that far because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it defies explanation and leads you to a place of woe, of wonder. Uh, he has a prophecy of, it's called the 70 weeks prophecy. You can look this up. And so it's from, they're, they're in exile in Babylon. They're out of their homeland of Israel. And the prophecy says that from the time that the king over here says you can go back and rebuild the temple until the Messiah that they've been waiting for is cut off will be, it says 69 weeks, which is 69 sevens of seven, 69 weeks of years. So it's 483 years. And when you do the math on that, and some of the dates have some discrepancy with them. When did Jesus go to the cross? All that, it's, it lines up perfectly. And like, crazy perfectly moves you to a place of uh, wonder. And so people speculate that these magi, that, and it's just speculation, but there's reason for it, that Daniel left a messianic prophecy or vision that involved a star, and these guys are just have documents from then, and that's what they're chasing down. Whatever the case, you have to ask, how do they, how do they know? How do they know? And it has to lead you to a place of wonder. These guys showing up is a like, whoa moment. Except for Herod. For Herod, it's like, whoa, wait a second here. And so Herod has some problems with it. So Herod the king heard this, and he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, I don't know why all of Jerusalem was troubled. I know why Herod was troubled. If you're the king, and someone comes and says, hey, we saw a star, and the king is born, and you know anything about it? Like, that's problematic for your status as the king, and so he's troubled by it. And so assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be uh, born. And so he, he's got a problem, and, and wonder does, in a lot of ways, pose a threat. And it gives you a choice, similar to last week with hope. Like, you can lean into wonder and say, man, that's crazy. I don't know how to explain that. And because I don't know how to explain it or control it, like, it may have implications for the way I'm doing things. And you can lean into it and say those implications are worth it because of what's behind the wonder. Or you can lean away from it and say, you know what, we're going to ignore it or, you know, try and explain it away um, so that we don't have to, to deal with it. And we squash it. We squash it. And I think we all have a bit of a built-in wonder squasher because it keeps us in control of things. And we resist wonder in some ways. When we're little, we don't, you know. And at Christmas, you see that, like, it's great because it is a time of wonder um, for a whole lot of reasons, you know. But as we grow older and we get a little, a little experience and we get a little beat down, maybe a little disappointed, possibly a little cynical, the wonder squasher grows. And Christmas, for different reasons when you're older than when you're little, is meant to, like, inflate the wonder, to blow into this barometer and inflate the wonder. Maybe when Jesus says, hey, unless you become like one of these children, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think this is part of what he's talking about. So um, the, 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 um, the chief priests and the scribes go back to Herod and say, uh, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, this gives you more room for wonder. 
Uh, these, these guys look up a prophecy in the book of Micah in the Old Testament that was understood to be one of a collection of prophecies about the Messiah. The Jewish people had an expectation that there was a coming king who will solve all their problems. And we don't have context for this. You know, like every election season, whoever your candidate is, is the Messiah who's going to save us from all our problems. But we don't have some list of ancient prophecies that say the president's going to be born here and he's going to be this tall and his parents are going to be this or whatever it is that predict what that person will be like. And they do. And they're still waiting on him. I went to Israel a few years ago and one of the remarkable things for me about that trip um, was sitting with this group that are waiting to be able to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock is now, which it's going to take a lot for that to happen. But they've, they've got all the instruments, according to the Old Testament, like prescriptions ready so that they can get up there and worship the way that they're supposed to. And one of the things that the lady said was that her husband traces his genealogy back to King David thousands of years. And so it's possible that her husband or her son or grandsons could be the Messiah. Now, <laughs> so they, like, that's another prophecy that the Messiah will come from the line of David, and they are still waiting and believing in these prophecies for the Messiah. Like, this is a, a real thing for them. And so this thing about being born in Bethlehem is another of these prophecies, and there are lots of them. I have, um, a, you know, a couple books on this. One of them is this Messianic Christology book, and it lists, uh, a, like, a, a number of these prophecies about the Messiah and goes through and it comes from a Jewish background and explanation of it and has the Hebrew. And so if you want to borrow this and um, geek out on it, we can talk about it. It'd be great. I love that. Um, and it, because there's, there's a bunch of them. Last week I referenced the prophecy about the Messiah being born of a virgin. And uh, that was one of them. And they're worth thinking critically about. Like when they wrote these, did they think that they were talking about the Messiah? Was there really a, what does all that mean? Like, that's worth having that discussion. But the reality is that the people that wrote the New Testament and included this prophecy and this passage and many others like this and said this prophecy was fulfilled, had a, they were much closer to the Hebrew world in which those prophecies were spoken and to the expectation that came along with these passages. And for 2,000 years, people have said, these are reason to believe in the divinity of Jesus because he fulfilled these prophecies. And so either all those people were, were fools, you know, and we are suddenly enlightened, or that is our built-in wonder squasher at work saying, eh, I don't think that really matters, you know, and it keeps us from inflating that thing inside of us that, that is made to be inflated in order for us to be healthy. And we actually need to resist not the wonder, but the wonder squasher when we come to passages like these and just let ourselves be amazed because it's worth being amazed at. There's a, um, a guy, and many people have done this, but one guy who's a professor of mathematics and astronomy named uh, Peter Stoner. And so he went into these prophecies and he ended, up, he ended up calculating the statistical probability that one person could fulfill um, just eight of these prophecies. And I think they document like 300 of them in the Old Testament. So he took the time of Jesus' birth, the Daniel prophecy of the 70 weeks, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, would be mocked, would be crucified, would be pierced, 
and would die with the wicked but be buried with the rich. Those were the eight that he dug into. And then he said the probability that all eight of those, and again, this is like we have these prophecies about a president like Abraham Lincoln was born in Kentucky and would be six feet, four inches tall, whatever it is. If you had eight of those and he fulfilled all eight of them, the probability was one in 10 to the 17th power chance. And he said that is like if you... If you covered Texas with silver dollars two feet deep and you painted one of those silver dollars red and you dropped it someplace from an airplane in the middle of the state and then you blindfolded a guy on the border and said, just stop walking whenever you want to and pick up a coin, it's the chance that they would pick up the one that you painted red. That eight of those prophecies could be fulfilled because they're not things that you could dictate for yourself could be filled, fulfilled by one um, guy's. That is meant, that should blow us away. And, you know, if you're a critical thinker like me, you look into those prophecies and you see if they're legit and if these expectations are reality, but they are. And you're going to find that out. And then you're going to have to stop thinking and you're going to have to start doing something else with it and just let yourself be amazed by it and by the God that is behind it. It's meant to blow your mind. Now, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them at what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come to worship him, which is the most cynical passage of the Bible because he doesn't want to worship him. He wants to get rid of him and he's going to do that because he's a wonder squasher. Uh, and you and you'd think like, what would it take for us to get to that place where we would you know, kill the wonder like that. But I think we probably sacrifice wonder on the altar of control a lot more often than we, than we realize. Um, and it says, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen while it rose went before them until they ca it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so what happens when we give ourselves over to wonder? And again, just thinking about the story, these guys have been on a long journey. That journey has been fraught with danger, you know, through politically contentious places with a big entourage, they have to have second-guessed themselves at certain times and been like, what are we doing here? And does this mean anything? And are we going to get to our destination? And they get there, and they get there, and wonder leads them to joy. Uh, it, it causes them to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And the language is over the top. Exceedingly is properly done to the max, going all out wide open with total effort, like doing something with a vengeance. This is saying the wise men rejoiced with a vengeance. Like, I want to rejoice with a vengeance over something. The word with great joy is megas. It's, they had mega joy. You want mega joy? I want mega joy. Wonder can lead us to mega joy. Like, the, this, the, the reality that there is a God, and he's good and loves you, like, if we just stop and let ourselves wonder at that, that should lead us to rejoice exceedingly with mega joy, with great joy.
And sometimes you get those moments where it's undeniable to you. I had one a little over a week ago, um, rare, a bit, after a bit of a journey fraught with danger, uh, like this series of coincidences that just could not be explained, and people, you know, close affirmed that and agreed with it. And you analyze it, but there's no making sense of it. And then you stop analyzing, and you're just like, whoa. And you're astonished, um, and it leads, to, it leads to joy, you know. Now, it also quickly leads to like, do it again, God, do it again, another one. <laughs> and then like, God, why won't you do it again? And when we, it becomes entitlement, um, but what I said last week, grace is for sinners, not the disappointed. <laughs> and, and like, we don't get that that way all the time, but when we do get it, wonder. Uh, there is a God. That God loves you. That God's personal. He has the hairs on your head numbered. That's what Jesus said. Wonder at that. He knows everything about me, and he's forgiven me. And in forgiving me, he's taken away my guilt and shame um, by, by Jesus' death on a cross. And he's given me hope for a future where the consequences of sin and death, the effects of them, are removed. And he's done that by the resurrection given me tangible reason to have hope in that and just to wonder and for that to lead to joy. And it should lead to joy for us. It leads to worship. They worshiped. And they didn't just worship. Like they went for it, worshiped. You know, they fell down and worshiped. Last week, um, after my message and the songs, like I told Julie afterwards, like, thank you for just going for it. And they go for it all the time, but she really went for it last week. And so, like, that's part of what it is to lead us in worship. And I did too, and it's blown into the spirometer and like blowing up something inside of myself that needs to be blown up. It leads to worship. And, and we, like, we miss that now. We need that. We need that more when we've been in here, like, falling down worship. Like, let yourself go worship and wonder leads us to offer our best and they offered you know gold frankincense and myrrh they offered the best because the thing behind the wonder is worth it is worth whatever we have uh we're made for this we're made for this this week i saw a poll by um gallup gallup is not a christian barna is a christian polling organization gallup isn't and uh they poll every november um, in the United States, people's a mental, they ask a question about their mental and emotional well-being, mental health, self-evaluation, and ask you to evaluate it as good, or as excellent, good, fair, and poor. And excellent typically runs between, like right between 43 and 45% over 20 years time. This year, predictably, it's down at 34%. So it's, it's down by a factor of 25, by a factor of 25%. They asked some other questions in this, and maybe surprisingly to me, one of them is about church attendance. And so do you attend church weekly, you know, like maybe once a month, maybe twice a month, or never at all? And what they found was that if you attend church weekly, let's use attend that term loosely, right now you're attending, and that if you attend weekly, the, the number, the percentage of people that said excellent actually went up 4% this year over last year. And the people that said 
never, it was down 13%. And the people that said once a month is down 12%. So you should be engaged in church at least weekly. Uh, but, and I think that has something to do with community, but I also just think it has something to do with wonder and with worship and with viewing that there's something beyond yourself that is worth giving yourself to on a weekly basis and committing yourself to. And that we're made for that, and it makes us healthier. Now, uh, the end of this story uh, it being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, which is more reason for wonder, they departed to their own country by another way. The word for wonder uh, actually isn't in the passage. That It's all over the passage, you know, but it's not in this passage, but it's used throughout the birth narratives of Jesus. And so when, when Zachariah, who's John the Baptist's dad, sees the angel in the temple, and he doesn't come out for a long time, the people are like, whoa, what's going on in there? And the word is wonder. When, when John the Baptist is born, and, and Zachariah, his dad, has been mute for nine months, and he writes down in the thing, his name is going to be John. And it says that the people wondered at that, and then, and then John could suddenly speak. When the, when the shepherds are visited by the angels, and then, they, and then they go to the manger, and they see the baby, and they tell Mary and Joseph and the people gathered there what, the, what had happened with the angels out in the field. It says that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, and it was a woe wonder. Uh, when Mary and Joseph go to the temple to dedicate Jesus, and they run into Anna and Simeon, and Simeon says all these things about um, Jesus and what's going to happen. It says his father and mother marveled, and it's that word for wonder. They marveled at what was said about him. That's the word. It's to be amazed, to be astonished, to, to marvel. You know, I thought about the Marvel comics, and that's like things that were like, whoa, like that's something that compels us, that draws us. Uh, I don't know what to say or do in that moment. When Jesus calmed the storm, it says that his disciples marveled. They were astonished at that. When he heals, the crowds were astonished. When Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, just before his crucifixion, and he doesn't respond to the accusations that are made against him, it says that Pilate marveled. He was astonished that Jesus didn't respond. And it's because he has this preternatural calm that comes from a place and Pilate recognizes it, that he's never seen before, that there's something behind that, and he wonders at it. Um, I was talking to Pastor Kel from Chosen this week about, he was talking about a, um, like a thing they're doing in their Bible study about David and you know, David facing the, the troubles that he had in Psalm 34, and David uses language that's real similar to how Mary does uh, in the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies, so we magnify him. We make him big, as big as he's supposed to be. And then we wonder, and then David was able to deal with his fears. And so we see this, you know, we're made for this. We, we need it. I read uh, an article this week uh, about, about what, like really what happens when you lose your wonder. And so it was a guy who grew up in church and in his teenage years was on fire for the Lord and then because he had some questions and because he had a pastor that really disillusioned him and disappointed him and, um, you know, just fell into some sin, he walked away from it. And he talked about what, what that was like. Uh, he said, I decided to identify as an apatheist, like one who doesn't really care about the whole thing. 
um, and settled into an aggressively non-religious existence in which the only spiritual truth I felt capable of embracing was my own incapacity to grasp life's great mystery. He actually quotes an 18th century hymn writer who said, a God comprehended is not God, which leans into wonder and probably tells me he was an environment of certainty um, because church environments can do that too, leave no room for wonder. And he talked about the freedoms that that led him to. You know, he quotes uh, Nietzsche, who was a 19th century philosopher who said, no price is too high for the privilege of owning yourself. No price is too high for the privilege of owning yourself. Sacrifice, wonder, on the altar of control. Same thing. And then he says, regardless of how correct I may have felt or justified in my self-righteous atheism, the truth was that losing my faith was the most traumatic and damaging experience of my life, and it messed me up for years. I didn't have a moral framework to work within. I no longer felt charged with holy purpose, and I never found a suitable replacement passion or philosophy to inform my daily life. It was like going through withdrawal and coming to terms with the idea that I would never be high again. Whenever I found myself at a church wedding, I would lament the loss of wonder in my life. I missed the music, the pageantry, that brain tickle that comes with glimpsing the unknowable. I watched my friends and family continue to derive comfort and joy from a tradition that has existed for thousands of years. And I wondered if maybe I was the stupid one. Like many people who had cycled out of church before me, I was beginning to wonder if maybe I could salvage some bathwater, if not the whole baby. And he just laments in this place of what he's made for. And questions are fair to ask, but this guy like realized that there was more to the questions than just the information There was something going on beneath it. And at the end of the article, he says he's actually now married to a woman who is a Christian. And he's like leaning ever closer to re-engaging that faith. But it's just an interesting perspective on what we lose without it. How often do you wonder? Are you astonished? Do you let yourself stop and just be amazed by God? Christmas Christmas is like one big reminder after another to blow into the spirometer and expand the wonder within our soul. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man to dwell, with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God is with us. When you go around and you see the lights, wonder that, as John said, so artistically, but to a point of, it's not explanation, it's just, but you know it's true somewhere, that the light came into the darkness, and the darkness could not, will not, cannot overcome the darkness. And that's what Christmas is about. Let your wonder take you there. I'm going to finish with a quote from a pastor named um, Frederick Buechner uh, about Christmas at the end of a, of a little thing he wrote for it. But he said, Christmas itself is by grace. It could never have survived our own blindness and depredations otherwise. It could never have happened otherwise. Perhaps it is the very wildness and strangeness of the grace that has led us to try to tame, to tame it, to tame Christmas, to squash the wonder of Christmas. We've tried to make it habitable. We've roofed it in and furnished it. We've reduced it to an occasion we feel at home with. At best, a touching and beautiful occasion. At worst, a trite and cloying one. 
reminded of the pastor I quoted last week. We said, let's not have a merry little Christmas. Jesus didn't come, or Jesus came to make all things new, not to make all things cute. Beekner continues, but if the Christmas event in itself is indeed, as a matter of cold, hard fact, all it's cracked up to be, then even at best, our efforts are misleading. The word became flesh, ultimate mystery, born with a skull you could crush one-handed. Incarnation. It is not tame. It is not touching. It is not beautiful. It is uninhabitable terror. It is unthinkable darkness riven with unbearable light. Agonized, laboring, led to it, vast upheavals of intergalactic space and time split apart, a wrenching and tearing of the very sinews of reality itself. You can only cover your eyes and shudder before it, before this God of God, light of light, very God of very God, who for us and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed puts it, came down from heaven. Came down. Only then do we dare uncover our eyes and see what we can see. It is the resurrection and the life that she holds in her arms. It is the bitterness of death he takes at her breast. My prayer for us this Christmas is that it would leave us amazed and astonished and marveling at the love that our Heavenly Father has for us.